My name is Corey Burris, and I have the honor of working for the Georgia Center for Opportunity, where we live by the motto, not for self, but for others. Every day, I get to talk with people breaking through serving their communities. These are nonprofit leaders, local volunteers, and businesses. This is the Breakthrough Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chris Rufo. He's the director behind the documentary, America Lost. This striking documentary looks at the people and systems holding the most impoverished cities in a state of disarray. What can we do to impact these communities, and where do we go next? Today, we have Chris Rufo with the Documentary Foundation and also uh, the director of America Lost. So, Chris, thank you for joining us to have a discussion about what you uh, did with this documentary, but also kind of your take on uh, in your journey around the country. Uh, tell me a little bit about... Um, now, America Lost is you going to essentially the three most impoverished cities in the United States, correct? Yeah, it's really a look at uh, kind of impoverished interior American city. And uh, I had done a research trip in the entire United States through some of the most devastated regions, through the Rust Belt, uh, through the Mississippi Delta and the Deep South, and then through the Central Valley of California. Eventually, we settled on three cities, Youngstown, Ohio, Memphis, Tennessee, and Stockton, California that are three of the poorest cities in the United States, but are also cities that um, really could stand in for anywhere. Um, Youngstown could easily be another Rust Belt city. Um, Memphis could be any kind of urban, uh, predominantly African-American uh, inner city. Uh, and Stockton is a kind of, post, uh, kind of post-racial mix of white, black, Latino, and Asian. It kind of represents the Western part of the country. And the idea was to not only explore three different regions, uh, three different kind of racial groups, but really to show that the struggles that they're facing are really converging and they're more and more united in some of the problems and challenges they face, uh, despite some of those exterior differences. Yeah, and, and you even mentioned this in the kind of the opening of the documentary, uh, which was you said you kind of went into it looking at it you thought it was going to be an economic story, right? About, uh, you know, how do we fix our economy? And it came out where you said it was more about a human economic crisis. Um, tell me a little bit about that. What, what did you mean by it when you said that? Yeah, I mean, I think for most people, when you think about poverty, the first instinct is to think about economics, because for the huge part of human history, poverty was an economic problem. People si simply didn't have enough of the basic resources. But uh, what I learned traveling through these cities is that although the economic component is important and many of these people lack, uh, lack resources compared to the rest of the country, there's social and kind of cultural issues that they're facing that are in some ways more difficult and, and pre present a greater obstacle than just the economic challenges. So I think the, the biggest takeaway that I had spending so much time in these places, following people for, for multiple years is you have to look at the issues around American poverty, not just through the lens of economics, uh, but really through the lens of, of social issues, through the family, um, and through cultural issues that, that sometimes keep people stuck in place when we really want to be able to have them uh, move up and out. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's one of those things that we discovered um, at, at, within our organization was this idea that... Um, 
it's not just are there jobs available? Can we get people into jobs? There's there's all of these other obstacles that people face in those situations, right? Whether they're racially uh, motivated or whether they're culturally or uh, you know relationships that they they don't like things that you and I may have available to us, community around us, encouraging us, helping us that that is just not not available to to many people in that in those types of situations. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that we do a disservice to people when we ignore those. And I think the reason that they're not a bigger part of the discourse is, one, they've become politicized. They become almost partisan issues. Um, so that even when you say the word family, um, there are all sorts of uh, kind of partisan and ideological reactions to that. It's become a polarizing topic. But if you actually look at the, the lives and talk to the people who are who are kind of in the most desperate situations, like I did, family was the number one thing they talked about, bar none. More important than jobs, more important than moving to a better state, more important than tax rates, more important than ability to become an entrepreneur, all of those kind of technical solutions that we offer, which are good and important. Um, it really boiled down for the most of the people that I spent time with those family relationships were primary. And when they become broken, when they become dysfunctional, when they become pathological even, um, it, it presents a, an enormous challenge for folks uh, who are already in a difficult situation. Yeah. So I, first of all, I want to applaud you for first uh, just going into a community and just listening. I think there's something about that that oftentimes people that, that – um, I don't want to say politically or motivated, but but we have our ideology, right? That we come with and we have our, we believe is our solution. But the idea that you went into these cities and you said, you know, what, I'm just going to listen to people's stories. I'm going to hear where they came from, what they, what, what were they experiencing and learn from that is, is very unique. And I think something that we all can learn a little bit about of uh, just listening and, and hearing the struggles that people are happening, the hopes and dreams that people happen to have. I, and one of the things that really stuck out to me was so many people talking about what they wanted for their children. Right. And, and you, uh, whether it was the mom, uh, talking about her daughter who was graduating or the dad at the end of the, of it that was talking about his, his new child and saying, Hey, I just want them to have something that I didn't have. Yeah. I think that was really across the board, one of the biggest motivators. And I think there's there's two kind of important lessons that you can cleave from that. One is that if you look at people who are kind of unattached to family relationships, like predominantly younger men in these communities, when they're not really bound by those family relationships, they're much more likely to get in trouble. They're much more likely to abuse uh, substances. They're much more likely to commit crimes, much more likely to be perpetrators and victims of violence. So, so in, in one sense, the family is a domesticating institution. It really... Um, connects people to something valuable and prevents some of those those harms that we see in, in, in places like Memphis and Stockton and Youngstown. And then at the same time, I, I think the other thing that you see is that people really truly understand that this is a multi-generational effort. Um, most of the folks that I talked to in the film, and including some of the people who are the main characters in the film, their motivation was not necessarily to provide, uh, you know, some kind of greater opportunity for themselves. It, that wasn't their driving motivator. It was to provide better opportunity to their kids. And I think they understand in a way that we, um, kind of the political rhetoric discounts is that, you know, people who 
maybe grow up in a bad situation in a poor part of town, don't have much of an education, have a kid, have two kids. Their goal is selfless in a way. They're trying to provide for their kids and they recognize that it takes time. And I think we do everyone a, a, a service if we really recognize that as a, as a foundational motivation for people and then held it up and celebrated it because that's how it's always worked. If you look at the work of the great economist Thomas Sowell, um, he studied mobility across history and across ethnic groups all over the world. And he found that it was always a multi-generational effort. It involved things like uh, finding, finding a job, uh, investing in skills, and saving for the future, and then providing a leg up for your kids. And um, mm. that was a universal, according to Dr. Sal. And I think that what I've learned is that the people on the ground that are in it understand these things better than the policymakers and the journalists and the kind of rhetorical folks uh, who who look at it from afar and try to analyze it from a distance. That's great. Yeah, and I, I think you even mentioned that in, in, the, in the documentary where you talk about it's more than just a math problem, right? Like I think both sides looking at it is like, if we just add the right numbers together, put the right money over here, put this thing over there, we'll just totally fix the problem. But it's a much more um, nuanced issue than that, right? There are so many facets to, to what, causes what we would call intergenerational poverty in these areas that um, that it, that there's much more to be done than just uh, shuffling money in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think that the the problem is that when you shuffle when you when you shuffle money around in a poor community, you have to be very careful, very precise, and very intelligent in how you do it. Because what you're actually doing is you're shifting the incentive system, mm -hmm. in some cases dramatically. So if you have an upper class neighborhood where people are making a lot of money, and you pour in, let's say, you know, $50 million a year in public funding, that's kind of structured in a, in a way that is not probably not optimum, people are going to be fine. It represents a small portion of the aggregate economy. It has a small influence on the behavior of, 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 of people in a place like that. But if you are throwing in, pumping in $50 million, or in the case like Memphis, the federal government is injecting $3 billion a year in anti-poverty money into a, into a small city for a small portion of people, you are absolutely shattering the kind of natural economic order, and it becomes this artificial economic order that... that in many cases creates perverse incentives, disincentivizes good things, incentivizes bad things. Um, but what you've done is, is you've, you've hurt with the helping hand. You've actually tried to go in and kind of pump money into a place to help, uh, and, and you end up, in many cases, creating a, a deeper problem and an intractable problem because you, 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 you kind of don't allow some of those healthy economic and social institutions to thrive. And I. I unfortunately saw that over and over. I think, um, you know, you might be shocked too. I was certainly shocked when I did the numbers and found this. But in Youngstown, which is a small city in, in Ohio, Rust Belt City, the federal government, uh, total federal government transfers are two times greater than all private sector wages combined in the wow. Mahoning County of Youngstown. So what that means is that two thirds of the money that is going in people's pockets in the city and kind of county of Mahoning 
is federal government dollars. What does that do to it, the economic life in a place? And, and it's not good. I think it's, it's good in the kind of first order effect. It's good in the short term. But if you look at the second and third order effects, you look at it over the long term, uh, it's actually very destructive. And I think that's, a, that's something that is counterintuitive. It's sometimes difficult to understand. Um, but I think is really important, especially as, um, as these issues become more and more topics of political conversation. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, speaking on that, uh, what were there common threads that you saw in all three cities? I mean, you, you looked at three totally kind of different areas of the country. You went to t three different types of stories. You know, you have Youngstown, which has, you know, industry that obviously left. You have Memphis, which has this kind of systemic issues uh, in and of itself. And then you have California, a very different type of scenario there, uh, drugs and other things that were going on there. What what was the kind of the common thread that you saw in all three locations? Well, I, you know, I think that if you look at it, let's, you know, we could start with economics again, but I, and I think we often overemphasize it, but it is important. So I think economically, all of these places at one time had opportunities for people with a high school education or less to kind of plug into a, um, a uh, industrial opportunity, an agricultural opportunity, uh, kind of warehousing, transportation, service. Um, there was at one time an, a kind of an opportunity society, an opportunity economy for people uh, with, with low levels of education and skills. That's really fallen apart in a lot of these places. We don't have that as the economy paradoxically has become more complex, more advanced, requires higher levels of education. Um, a, a lot of the folks who maybe traditionally, let's say, a you know, half century ago, could have found stable employment, it's no longer there like it used to be. Um, and there's a huge political debate around that. And I think that um, it's a debate that we should have and figure out how to orient a free market system which creates abundance, um, make sure that it also kind of carries the people uh, at, at the kind of lower end, um, in a way that brings them into that opportunity system. Um, but I think the, the deeper issues that you, that you look at, um, I think family is a huge one. And this is something that um, really became controversial with the Moynihan Report many years ago that looked at the family structure of African-American families. It became very political, and for the next 50 years, it was something you didn't talk about. But what's happening now is that the, the, the problems that, Moynihan identified 50 years ago in the African-American community are now really kind of transracial. They're affecting mm -hmm. uh, poor whites, they're affecting poor Latinos and poor African-American communities to differing degrees, but not really that much. When you look at specific neighborhoods, specific cohorts, it's really become a class-based problem. And you know, if you're in the west side of Youngstown, in the Steelton neighborhood, 77% of all children live with a single parent. And then if you're in the, in the south side of Memphis, in the 38126 area, um, it's 92%. So you're, you're creating these entire neighborhoods where the idea of intact families is dead. It's gone. They don't exist. They're the kind of, you know, the pink elephant. They're the, the, uh, they're the exception. They're the kind of, uh, kind of, an odd sighting in some of these communities. Again, 
in all racial groups. So I think that's a huge, huge issue. And then lastly, I think that you, 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 you have the, the, the role of men, frankly. Um, this is something, again, we've been talking about in the kind of journalism, academia, think tank world. Um, and you see it very acutely because if you have a world where the economic system is not bringing people through to opportunity, if you have a family uh, kind of a family situation that is really dysfunctional, um, you have an entire generation of poor American men that that are disengaged from the labor force. In a lot of these places, it's only about 20% of working age men working full time throughout the year. So 80% of working age men are not working full time uh, throughout the year. That's a huge problem. And then what does that lead to? Well, as you see in the film in Stockton, um, you have a lot of free time. You're not working. You have some ways to get by. Um, and like any young men, you're going to do, you know, you're going to start trouble. You're going to get into trouble. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's not kind of the lightweight troubles that, that you might have in a middle or an upper class uh, community. Um, it's, it's dangerous. It's, it's uh, kind of the drug trade, the black market economy. Um, it's violence. Uh, it's uh, gang life becomes a very attractive option. And then you're just compounding these problems until you get to the point where, um, you know, sociologists who have studied places like Youngstown have made the hypothesis maybe these places can never come back. Um, and that's a devastating idea to even raise and I think is, is, is fundamentally at odds with the American project uh, yeah. and the American dream. And it's cyclical, right? Because you have now kids who, who never have had maybe a, another parent in their life. And so they don't know the example of what that brings to them. So they have not had it modeled to them of what it's like to have both parents and the importance of that. And so they just, the, it becomes this issue that just keeps going and going and going. And, um, and, and we've seen the breakdown of family and the breakdown of relationships and strong relationships that, that has really just kind of whittled away at, at the, at these, uh, these cultures and at these, uh, these people that are already have so many things stacked against them Be in long. so many ways. So this week great. I'm joined by Tom Baylog. Um, Tom what, runs the Lawrenceville so Co-op, which has served their what community. What do we take from this? Like, I, I, you know, years, in some ways, it, you know, uh, you get to the end of the, the documentary and, it, you know, um, thank you for joining us. If, you know, as somebody of, like myself, if you know of people living in a middle class in their lifestyle, you know, about them. what, what Send us can a message we do? On Facebook is, is there hope? What is, the, what, Don't from what you saw, what do you see as the next step? The Breakthrough Podcast is a production of the Georgia State Yeah, you know, there is hope. And I think that, um, we do. To help break down you the have to really to separate out the macro from the micro. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the numbers, it's, it's, it's hopeless, it's despairing, it's devastating. If you, if you think of it in terms of, well, what policies could we enact that we haven't tried before that might turn these things around, you're going to hit a dead end. Uh, and, and, and you're going to get to that same kind of pessimistic place. But where I found hope was in the micro kind of relationships, people, the kind of spirit of some of these folks that are living in desperate circumstances uh, and finding inspiration. And, you know, as you mentioned, the, the family question is cyclical. It's multi-generational. It's now the point where you have entire neighborhoods without intact families. But, 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 but then you actually really talk to people and you, you, can, you, you hear from them something amazing. You hear, yeah, I grew up in this neighborhood in the south side of Stockton. 
where there was 100% roughly broken families, everyone. But I feel the lack of that. I know there's a better way. There's something innate that, that wants me to put that back together again. So I'm going to try to provide that in my own life and then for my kids. And, and I think that there's, there's some natural impulse that we have to harness that's inside everyone that, that really naturally uh, kind of reaches out for the good life, reaches out for those family institutions, reaches out for finding uh, stable work and providing, reaches out for creating meaning in community. And I think what we've done is that we've, we've broken the natural incentive system. And what we need to do is actually listen to the people who are on the ground in these communities, figuring out what they want and letting those kind of natural, trusting them and letting and breaking down barriers and letting those natural human instincts and intuitions, letting those things repair and resolve and restore themselves. And, and ultimately, I'm optimistic because you see in almost every family that I followed, no matter how bad things got, they still had this underlying sense of optimism, this underlying moral sensibility of where they wanted their life to go. And I think that in the real, the final analysis, that what I came away with is that as policymakers, as kind of uh, media, as elites, you know, we've done folks a tremendous disservice by patronizing them uh, and by thinking that we know better than they do and by creating policies that don't affect us that have had devastating impact on the life in poor communities. And we have to cut it out. We have to yeah. reduce a lot of these things. A lot. We have to dismantle many of those counterproductive policies and then trust that people will follow this kind of natural and American desire to improve their lives and do everything we can to support that. Um, and ultimately, that's the direction I think we need to go. Yeah, I love that. Putting it back in the hands of the people and the communities that it's impacting, right? Em empowering them to be able to do something about it uh, instead of this kind of top-down uh, government-based uh, solution thing. That's great. Um, so uh, love the documentary. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. And, and I think everyone should go and watch it. But how can they, how can they find the video? How can they watch it? Um, I know, you know, we're, we're right now in lockdown in, in the U.S., so it's a little bit different, but how can, how can people get a hold of it? Well, you know, the coronavirus has thrown a bit of a wrench in the plans. We had scheduled a series of events around the country. We had, you know, more than 100 <laughs> screenings planned for the summer. Uh, those have all been, unfortunately, canceled. But because people are locked at home and, you know, they still need some great uh, content, what we've done is we've made the film... Uh, available to watch for free to any of our partner organizations. So anyone who's uh, affiliated with or on the email list of the Georgia Center for Opportunity can watch the film in its entirety for free just by going to americalostfilm.com slash premiere. Just americalostfilm.com slash premiere. Uh, you can enter your email address and watch the whole film for free. And then hopefully when things open back up, we'll be starting to roll out some screenings in the future. Well, Chris, thank you for, uh, again, capturing these stories. I, again, I think people, 
listening to what people are going through and, and, and the experience that they're, they're having is so very important for us understanding the problem and also the solutions to the problem. So thank you for doing that. Uh, thank you for what you're doing at the, uh, at your, uh, documentary foundation. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, we'll be sending around the link to all of our, our folks and, uh, thank you for America Lost. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. If you know of people making a difference in their community, we want to hear about them. Send us a message on Facebook at GA Opportunity. And don't forget to like us while you're there. The Breakthrough Podcast is a production of the Georgia Center for Opportunity. You can find out all the work that we do to help break down the barriers leading to poverty at georgiaopportunity.org.